Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. My guest today on the program is John Swed, author of the book Cosmic Scholar, The Life and Times of Harry Smith, the filmmaker, folklorist, and mystic who transformed American art. John, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So I, like probably most people who knew, know about Harry Smith, knew him as the uh, editor of the Anthology of American Folk Music, uh, which is, you know, in my opinion, the greatest compilation album ever released. But I didn't really know anything about the person behind that name, which turns out to be quite uh, an extraordinary life story. Could you just give us a, a brief sense of who Harry Smith was? Well, that's the toughest question of all. <laughs> the, as background, you could think of this that, um, well, let's see how, to, how far back could we go. Um, when, when Harry died at the memorial service they had for him, there were people there who were not only surprised at some of the people who showed up, but they were wondering why they were there and um, in an annoyed sort of way. I mean, what's this filmmaker? Where are these filmmakers here or the psychiatrist or whatever? And I thought at first when I, was, I heard about that, well, you know, these things happen. But then I found out that when they, he also, when he first passed, uh, the people closest to him got together with the Chelsea to try to figure out what to do with his stuff and how to continue his, his uh, legacy. And they were annoyed, but some of the people were there. And then, well, then I found out that when the Getty put on a, a two-day symposium, bringing in lots of people, the same thing happened again. <laughs> they were really annoyed. So uh, two things that come from that is how narrow we all are, I guess. And the other is um, how secretive Harry was. Uh, it, it seems to be, I resisted saying this at first, but I, it looks like, you can't help but say that he was trying to keep keep these people apart from each other, uh, and for, for, for strange reasons. Well, who? What are the people? Well, let's see. Starting back from his earliest days, he was a child prodigy who, um, to put it mildly, who was deep into Native American culture, at least where he was raised on the northwest coast of, of Washington State, and um, he was also interested in classical music early on and then discovered folk music by accident when, when, when he actually found some records being thrown out and he was stuck by what they sounded like and uh, he moved into that kind of thing. Then he went to college to study anthropology, he dropped out after the war was going on, he dropped out after a few terms, went to Berkeley and he continued collecting records. He by now he had about twenty thousand seventy-eight RPMs. It seems like in various places, and at this point he 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 resorted back to something he was trained in, um, which was painting and drawing. He'd taken a for years, I guess, as a kid, taken courses from a WPA teacher who was quite good, and he had he said over a thousand drawings and paintings, most of well, most of which all of which have been lost. 
So now he was a painter and a kind of collector and anthropology person and so forth. But he was drifting into surrealism at Berkeley. And then um, his paintings started to take on a new kind of shape. He turned to filmmaking, which he had never done per se, um, making him a filmmaker. And from there on, it spins out, uh, collecting everything in sight. Um, I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this. Um, <laughs> that problem seems to come up for you in the book often, trying to find a nice way to put this. I mean, one of the questions that I kept kind of asking myself reading your book was like, and this is not like a very formal academic question, but like, is this guy for real? You know, like, is he, and I don't really know what I mean by that, but other than just like, I don't know. He kind of seems at times like a charlatan. At other times, he seems like a complete genius. And he left behind at least a few works that have stood the test of time and are likely to continue to do so. But, you know, some of the ideas he gets up to, you think, you know, did he even believe what he was saying? You know, well, two I mean, you reproduce some of his, his lectures late in life uh, that he gave at the uh, the school in Colorado that was founded in Jack Kerouac's mem- uh, memory. And, and it's like, it's this weird mix of absolute brilliance and kind of total incoherence. I mean, that must have been hard for a biographer. <laughs> uh, two thoughts. Then. One is um, Peter Stemfel's, um piece called His Tapes Roll On, and one of the lines is, um, he was conned by a few people and conned a few, <laughs> conned a few others. Um, <laughs> another way to look at it is that... Um, well, he was in New York t- for 10 years before anyone knew what he, that's, that's not quite right. Uh, he was in New York for 10 years before there was any mention of him in any medium that that, that would we could find evidence of him until um, about 1964, um, Village Voice, where Jonas Mikas began his piece by saying, does Harry Smith even exist? So back to your question. Then he says it's possible that he's he's already left the planet, which made me think of Sun Ra, who had written about before. You know, both these people seem to be cosmic in some way or another. So yeah, um, what is he? I mean, he, he you know, you do the terms autodidact and um, poly this and that and genius, and and then you can also add in mad if you want to or half mad, as people will, will, will use on him. He could fit all kinds of categories. It's for sure that he had, um, as John, the late John Cohen said, he had a mind like a, com- a computer, and he could, you know, snap up items faster than you could think of them. So fast that he seemed to be talking faster than he could think. Uh, oh, sorry, thinking faster than he could talk. And then he, someone asked, sometimes him, both. <laughs> Someone asked and said um, something about that, and he said, "Well, I, you know, uh, he didn't exactly say that he was talking. Um, you know, uh, well, he put it this way: that uh, there was no language which would fit what he had to say. <laughs> and in a sense, I suppose that's true. Yeah, I, I almost imagine, you know, like a group of people 
talking about Harry Smith and someone comes up and says, are you talking about Harry Smith, the filmmaker? And they say, oh, no, we're talking about Harry Smith, the, the painter. And then somebody else says, oh, I thought you were talking about Harry Smith, the the, the anthropologist. And somebody else says, oh, I thought you were talking about Harry Smith, the Kabbalistic mystic. And, and you know, the, they only later find out that they're actually all talking about the same guy. I think that's partially helped by having such a generic name, but also just the incredible range of interests that this person had. I mean, it's it's really remarkable all the different areas he was able to not only dabble in, but make significant contributions in. Yeah. And um, it's t- it took me a while to figure out that, you know, you immediately start doubting a person like this as I did Sun Ra, but you find that you do this at your own risk, just at the point where you think, aha, this is, this is bull, this is whatever. And then suddenly you realize you've been misunderstanding what they were saying. And uh, it happened again and again with Harry and, um, he was running faster than you were, and um, he had habit, by the way, of this was noted by someone who had interviewed him at great length, and all, but had not written about it much, that he would start something, stop it, and go to something else. Well, okay, people do that. But then hours or even days later, he would start where he left off the previous time. And it's cut up. It's sort of a cut up phenomenon. You know, it's a, 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 a one person um i don't want to be careful with the word surrealism right now by the way the word surrealism is interesting here because the people he he started out with i mean talking about being 15 years old and going to native american reservations up in the coast and they were on the northwest coast there every so many miles and lots of them small groups he ingratiated himself with the the elders to the point that they were not only um allowing him to hang out, but they were letting him in on things which were forbidden to other people. In fact, forbidden to the point that the U.S. had laws against certain kinds of rituals, kind of enforced enforced acculturation, and you, know, you shouldn't be doing this or that. That was done away with in the 50s, and in Canada only did away with theirs in the 60s. So Harry was seeing things that were technically illegal, and nothing, nothing that would shock you. It's just they didn't want, you know, uh, right. they didn't want that around. So he starts out like this with with incredible reading habits, reading everything he could find in the, the, the libraries in the two towns he lived in, and um, apparently remembering enormous amounts of them. But then every now and then something would really stun me about him. He gave an interview with a, um, a man who had a newsletter in Australia a film newsletter, and he wanted to talk to Harry about film, and Harry wanted to talk about uh, Australian anthropology. Now, having studied anthropology, I knew that there was hardly anyone in the U.S. who knew anything about that, more than, you know, one or two people here and there had worked in Australia. And it's a distinct crowd of people in a distinct culture. So uh, Harry proceeds in this interview, as it was published, to rattle off all the key names in the history of anthropology and pre-anthropology in Australia, quoting at length from them. And I'm thinking, my God, you have two choices here. He knew all this stuff before and still had it in his memory. Or the, the night before, he started reading this stuff and he still was doing it. No, he's not faking. He really knew it. Every now and then he'd start quoting from a, um, you know, a, a po- piece of poetry gathered by so-and-so and so on. It's, in that sense, there's something absolutely phenomenal in and you know inhuman about this kind of person all right and i i guess i have a similar question about the uh the, the anthropological research he did as a as a teenager in washington state 
from your perspective as an anthropologist, I mean, he, he was at that point, uh, you know, an amateur. He was un, untrained formally in anthropology. How, how kind of useful or credible was that work that he did, uh, you know, in his teenage years? Well, I can quote from, uh, from a teacher he had, who I also had at one point, Melville Jacobs. Um, he, he was quoted in the press as saying, when Harry was still in high school, that he was uh, much more advanced than the graduate students he knew and, and, many, and many faculty members. Now, um, that's because Harry had, had gone to see him and asked him to teach him to do things like, uh, how do you write an international phonetic code so that you get you know, into serious hardcore linguistics? And, that, and Harry was then beginning to make word lists of two languages and wanting to use more than two, two different languages on the West Coast, and he was going to do them comparatively. Now, this is several things to say about that. One is these languages were on the decline, and you, you really had to work to get older people to work with you, and they, they weren't always that cooperative. And it meant sitting with people for hours and hours and days and say, where you say, what does that mean? And the problem with phonetic stuff is that you may not hear it. If it's not in your system of, of sounds, it may just pass off as some, you know, clearing your throat or whatever. So at 15, 16, 17, he was doing this really advanced work in linguistics. And at the same point, he was trying to work out a system of how you could you could notate dance. And dance notation is notoriously lacking. <laughs> the ballet people are probably the further along on that. They're not that along, far along. So Harry was inventing his own system, how you could transcribe the dance steps. Otherwise, you'd have to film them. And of course, he had no film or, or money to spend on that kind of thing. Um, anyway, I, I, that left me with a feeling with what in, why in the world were they doing this? I mean, nowadays, you know, they kick you off the reservation if you, they show you with a notebook. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but um, they're much more restrictive. And they think the current people from those various groups can't understand why this happened. I, I don't like to speculate. My best guess, though, would be that um, and at a time when modern media, like not TV yet, but film and so forth, were coming in recordings, their own people were drifting away from some of the basics, and the, particularly the younger people. Um, and then here comes this white kid who who's dying to know all these things and learning them and learning the languages. Um, there's at least a few cases where this happened with with anthropologists who, were, who did just that at 12 years old. They were going to powwows representing Indian groups. So it's not impossible. So the, they kind of saw him as a way to preserve their culture from the the kind of uh, influences of encroaching modernism, kind of. Yeah, and when he and many years later, when he went to Florida, visited the Seminoles in the uh, Everglades. Um, I talked to a fellow who went with him, a, a student who was just hanging out with him, and I said, "How'd that go?" And he said, "Well, he was welcomed by the older people. He was, uh, but the younger people ignored him." And I said, "Why?" And he said, "Because they were listening to Dylan's Blonde on Blonde at that time, and they'd grown their hair long and had, you know, they were living, you know, they had battery-driven uh, record players. Um, <laughs> they thought Harry was coming, you know, from the old world." Um, Did Harry tell them that he knew Bob Dylan? He was obsessed by Blonde on Blonde. In fact, he was he, he would sometimes sing parts of it you know, for people. You know, um, 
we will we can come to that, but to jump ahead, he 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 was never that he was never that fond of of uh, Dylan's electrical records, but he he was it wasn't a problem, and he thought I think he had some kind of deep connection with him. My point being, where I'm coming to, is that he resisted seeing him even when Dylan came to visit where he was staying, and he said, "You know, I, I don't want to. I'm sleeping. Leave me alone." He ducked him at other times, so I was never able to explain that. Someone who knew him at the time said that he thought that uh, Harry thought that they had this spiritual connection that might be messed up if they actually met each other. That's possible. I, I completely understand that. I've resisted reaching out to authors, publicists, if I especially like their work, because I, I feel like uh, actually interviewing them might kind of break the mystique. <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, so you also wrote a book about Alan Lomax, who is uh, who some people believed uh, Harry Smith was a, uh, a pseudonym for Alan Lomax. Not true, of course, but... Um, and you write that the, the differences in their approaches to folk music and kind of uh, ethnography in general are often overstated. So kind of uh, what were the differences between them and what were the similarities between how they approached uh, kind of recording and interfacing with these different music cultures around the world? Yes, yes you're right. The, um, the, the writing about Lomax, particularly when he, when he passed away, um, and then when Harry uh, came up in, in, in the context would be to say that uh, Alan was the purest and Harry was the impurest and, and Harry was the good guy because he knew that the, the commercial recordings were valuable and should be understood for what they were, even pop versions of stuff and where Lomax was. But that was exactly wrong in two fronts. One is they knew each other, both respected each other enormously, and that uh, Harry had done field recordings. They, they're in the um, Smithsonian, but no one seems to want to bring them out, of... of um, sort of Appalachian material, uh, um, varieties of Native American songs and so on. He he had done this same kind of thing. And he, let's face it, he was the producer of the first the first Fugs record. Um, he, you know, he recorded Ginsberg's music. So he, uh, he was also interested in pop as well. Um, some of his taste always threw me, like he loved uh, Donna Summers. I don't know what to make of that. And, um, <laughs> I was telling everybody to go see him. He was he was crazy about reggae. Um, so anyway, that those kind of polarities are wrong. I can see why people like to write in that kind of fashion. But um, the real difference, if I had to talk about it, would be that Lomax was writing about how things were on their way out, or the old things were on their way out, and you had to move fast, but also you had to protect them in some way, which he, he certainly did and worked on a revival of it. Um, Harry, Harry, Harry would have said the same thing, only he thought this was the natural course of things. And in some places he'd be talking about how, how Elvis Presley must be popular in China by now, which I'm sure he was in some way or another. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, Levi Strauss's discussion of entropy, the idea that kind of, you know, uh, as we become more interconnected, cultural differences are inevitably going to die away. But that doesn't mean that we can stop the process of, you know, globalization or, or, or cosmopolitanization uh, that's, that's unleashed by the modern world, that that's just sort of a consequence of the modern world is that, you know, these folk cultures are 
are kind of on their way out. I mean, and there's there's a kind of elegiac quality to that, but it can also just be a sort of frank uh, understanding that that's the way of the the way of cultural change. Yeah, and things are on their way out always. I mean, uh, that's that's a factor. On the other hand, they also come back in in ways that sometimes people don't even recognize because they didn't know the original. Um, history of rock is like that, I think, in many ways. Yeah, um, what to say about that? Harry, um, Harry, Harry's also misread on, on the purpose of the anthology. They'll say things like, um, he's the first person to not identify the race of the performers, which is simply wrong. Uh, the record companies used to do that. Uh, used to try to pass people off one way or the other. There were, there were several lawsuits where people sued to get off the other label. But also um, on Folkways Records, which he ended up on, they had done another of them where they didn't even identify where the country was for some people. And for, for reasons that it was similar to Harry's reasons, which are in his notes, but despite of all the writings about him, they ignore the part where he talks about just this, that these... The, the musics are interpenetrating each other to a degree that you can't always tell who's who. And he was reveling in that fact, not um, bemoaning it. Right. Even, I mean, and, and the vast majority, I think all but one or two tracks in the anthology are from the American South, uh, where, you know, we've let, been led to believe that segregation was this iron wall. But you can tell in the music that at least, you know, among working class people, there was always a degree of uh, cultural back and forth that, uh, that, that shows up. I mean, you, you cite the example of people thinking that Mississippi John Hurt was like some, you know, uh, upcountry white hillbilly singer. <laughs> and of course, he's, you know, one of the great African-American songwriters of all time. Yeah. And um, I was, you know, from early childhood, I, I was raised in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, I still, that's the most the deepest memories I have of what radio was like. There was music on there I'd never heard before. And, and and probably never heard again, an uh, enormous number of gospel quartets and things of that order, but also some people like Hank Williams, who was singing in several different zones, if you want to, as you know, he's doing kind of rock records when he talks about, um, hey, good looking, you know, that kind of thing. But he's also doing Cajun music. The point being that radio was totally integrated. And you couldn't escape it. Now, I thought that was specific to the South, but I was just reading, uh, um, a book where someone is talking about Chicago in the 50s and he says I heard more Serbian Italian and I forget what else, and Polish music than I did um, um, rock rhythm and blues and jazz and so on um, they were just filled with it you grew up with it I was suddenly surprised I'm thinking well you know this was this is the way radio was and it had they also had you know so even illegally um, people, they were broadcasting very often from Mexico or the border so they could beat the laws and then pump the stations up across the country. So you're likely to have heard incredible music as if you were on a um, shortwave radio. And some of this would not have been uh, records. It would have been people performing live in the studio, right? Wasn't that quite Absolutely. a bit of a radio back then? Absolutely, particularly in the South. That stuff has not been paid attention to. I think uh, Mike Seeger... Uh, recorded a lot of it, and he put a little bit out, but it's it's kind of fascinating. But then, to me, 
But the really least known thing is how very often the, the DJs who were playing, say, black music were themselves white. And I have a few tapes lying around where um, people who would, you know, they were actors or whatever, some, somehow found their way into the South. And you're thinking, well, people didn't know the difference since whatever, you know, it was radio. But uh, one of these guys, Hoss Allen, um, when he passed, there were 3,000 some people at his funeral and all they were all African-American. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of that, uh, the Ralph Ellison line in Invisible Man, I'm going to butcher, but something like, you know, who knows, but on the lower frequencies, I speak for you. Right? <laughs> yeah. Also, um, I was thinking the first, it, it, if it's not the first record, it was certainly the, the first hit of Chuck Berry's was um, Maybelline. And Maybelline is nothing but a slightly changed version of Bob Will's um, Ida Red. And when I discovered that, I thought, well, this is interesting. He's using, uh, uh, you know, kind of literally what they used to call country and Western, using the Western music as a basis for rock and roll. But when I found out that even before this, a bebop band in Philadelphia had recorded Ida Red, <laughs> it, was, it was in the air. Um, you're, you've written extensively on jazz music, and that was another of Smith's interests. Um, you write quite a bit about... Uh, Harry Smith's idea of trying to transpose bebop solos uh, into painting and not in a sort of impressionistic sense of I was listening to this album while I was painting, but, you know, literally each brushstroke corresponds to a note in the solo or in the composition. Uh, could you write a little bit about that project or could you talk a little bit about that project and um, what he what he was up to in, in that and and uh I don't know. Are, are these paint? Can these paintings be read as it, almost like sheet music, or is it more uh, abstract than that? Well, um, to back up a second, he was he'd he'd gotten shocked in, into listening to country music and so forth, and was certainly picking that up uh, when he was getting all of his records. That he was uh, the records that he was getting was, were often thrown out during the war. It's another story itself, but. Um, that was what he was doing. But then when I found out that he, that a number of these people that he, he had on his anthology were alive and they were appearing at the Friends of Old Time Music in, in the village, uh, I checked with uh, John Cohen, who was the co-founder of it, and I, he said, Harry never went to him. I said, he never went to the things that he, he was lionized. He said, no, he was going to jazz clubs. He would move wow. on. Now, let's to back up. In 1946, um, let's say 47, when he would, came down to Berkeley from from uh, Seattle, um, bebop had reached had reached the West Coast a little later, but not much later than it had on the East Coast. And when I started exploring that a bit, I found out that the people who responded to it, uh, that you could categorize as a people. Uh, most most frequently were artists and filmmakers, which stunned me. And I'm thinking, what in the devil? So some early experimental films and uh, art films used jazz records as background, even as far as uh, New Zealand, where um, um, there were several people doing this kind of thing. Then uh, Harry's best friend, who was the painter, uh, 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 I'm going into names, one of his best friends, said of that was that bebop was simply the most radical thing going and that arts people all thought we got to be part of this because it's it's running ahead of us 
it's like abstract expressionism is already there in this stuff. And in fact, a lot of painters who didn't really try to paint the music sometimes put the titles onto it. Occasionally, someone um, would try to do it, but in a, in a kind of subtle way, like painting one painting over top of another, suggesting bebop's practice of putting one melody on top of another melody. And so you can either listen to knowing that they were both going at the same time or not listen to it that way. So it was this kind of, and bebop is objected to by all kinds of people. This is why I find it kind of fascinating. The jazz people hated it by and large. Right. Uh, they belittled the people. Louis Armstrong made a record, a very funny record, mocking it called the Bop and Poof song, uh, built on the Whiff and Poof song. Uh, the Russians even hated it. They said, it's more American decadence and we don't need that. So uh, other, and other people were saying it sounds like Chinese music. And what it was, was extremely abstract in terms of the existing pop uh, or light, whatever, light classical music, because it it had lots of stop and go, lots of um, non-repeated passages. Uh, it could go on and on, but it was breaking rules like crazy. And by people who were presenting themselves as artists, not just as pop people, but somehow, you know, we're, we're into a new zone. Well, Harry somehow got into that. He skipped over entirely the rhythm and blues, which I found fascinating. <laughs> he must have thought it was already backward. And was just as when it was reaching the public in the mid 40s, and hits like um, which are no longer remembered, like um, "Open the Door, Richard," um, which everybody knew at the time. Now we're totally forgotten, but everybody knew it at the time. And Harry's not paying attention to it; he's going into this other stuff. So, what he did in his paintings was to try to get that complexity across. But if he had done that just by doing schematics or something, it would have been—I um, don't know repetitive, I think. But what he did was use different forms for this. Uh, Kabbalah here, uh, uh, some kind of geometrics there. So each one of these representations he did of a recording or have a form which is different from another. Now, he claimed that every brush stroke, every touch of the brush to the canvas was a chord, a note, a rhythm, whatever. And he, he apparently... Um, we only have what memories of people who saw this. He would take, he would play the record, show you the painting, and then with a ruler or something, point to where it was in it and trail it around. Now, I've got a rough drawing of this that someone did, and I could see how it worked. It was a Dizzy Gillespie recording of Lover Come Back to Me. He was particularly fond of, of Gillespie for two reasons, I think. One, because Gillespie was using Latin's, particularly Cuban material, mixed in with, with bebop which made it all the more complex rhythmically, but also because he had used um, marijuana for the first time at Dizzy Gillespie performance and was he said his whole life was changed. That in a Bessie Smith recording, which I can't quite relate to in that way, but and he said he saw these explosions of colors and so forth. So Harry trying to represent this, and it would, you can imagine with a single 78 record, which you have to keep stopping and going, how long it would take to just even transcribe the damn thing. You'd have to spend, you know, weeks at it possibly. Um, he was spending years. And so he never did that many. And they were, they were all either mostly Gillespie, uh, a couple Charlie Parker things and a couple Perez Prado recordings have disappeared. 
So can you play them? That's a good question. And a musician asked me about that. And I said, well, if you, if you understood what was, what, you know, what that dot came to be or, or was coming from, um, and you could separate it, basically understand the, the, the language that he's working with, yes. And then I said, when someone asked me about this the first time, I said, but I imagine it would be, it would still be full of mistakes, to which this musician said, so are the normal music transcriptions, even even Monk's own transcriptions of Thelonious Monk's transcriptions of his own work contain some, some what people would not call errors, but they're not the same. Something's, mm-hmm. something's mixed in there. And it seems like, especially with uh, with bebop, I mean, so much of it is the tone. I mean, you know, when you talk about uh, the the great saxophone players of the fifties and sixties, a lot of what you're talking about is 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 tone, timbre. It's not the notes they're playing. It's not the rhythms. It's the sound that they're getting out of those notes and the rhythms. So, you know, those are things that are notoriously hard to capture in traditional music notation. Do you think partially he was trying to kind of do what traditional music notation was was bad at doing in that sense? It's a nice thought. I um. Thinking someone like um, Charlie Parker, people at the time who, who were close to that music, one of the things that affected him was that he was uh, he was stressing notes where nobody would stress notes, and doing them in, in in ways that were unpredictable. And on the same recording, it was another the second time it came up, it wasn't like that. Or to give a, a shifting example to to Dizzy Gillespie's uh, recording of the record Anthropology appropriately. Um, which, by the way, I used to have on my message machine at Yale it freaked people out, so I finally took it away. Um, it, um, anthropology begins every phrase on a different beat. Now, <laughs> that's really conscious, you know, compositional thinking. And it also throws everything into a cocked hat if you're listening to it and say, whoa, where did that come from? And it didn't repeat in the ways other things did. So you're, you're, it's fresh material kept flying at you. And this all in a three and a half minute record. And if we add to this that, that, that Parker at some point, certainly at his recording of Coco, which Harry painted, was he was playing 13 notes a second. And I've invited people to try to just drum on the table 13 fingertips in one second. It's, I can't do it. Now try putting it in your brain, transferring it to your breath, to the reed, to the instrument, to your fingers, and out through the horn in the same speed. So even if you just, even if you dislike the music, you had to say, "What in the hell?" Right. I mean, the 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 bebop generation really saw themselves as you know as inheritors of of modernism, uh, right? I mean, I, I think of Charlie Parker. Uh, playing uh, a piece of, I think it was the Firebird Suite when he saw Stravinsky at one of the clubs. Yeah. I mean, these were these were very uh, uh, conscious, uh, you know, uh, composers and and formal artists in that sense. Yeah, and there's there's a sort of unwritten history of younger uh, avant-garde, so, so-called composers of the time who wanted to know more about it. Um, um, slipping my mind at the moment, I'll think of who it was in a second. One example. Um, one composer hired a group of musicians, called up the union and said, could I have, you know, whatever number of people he was asking for. And when they got there, uh, there was no music. And he said, you guys just play and I'll sort of point to you and so forth. 
And I talked to Bill Crow, who was in on that session, bass player, and he said the, the attitude of the musicians was this cheapskate is trying to do make us do his compositions, which I guess he was. <laughs> Sounds great. Stuff on um, Volpe. Got it. It was he. Okay, great. Yeah. Another field that uh, Smith was one of the you know most influential figures in, I had no idea about any of this before reading your book, was avant-garde film. Uh, Jonas Mikas was a big fan. You've already mentioned that. Um, but could, could you give us a sense of what his impact was in that field and you know uh, some of the people that he was associating with in, in the world of film? Yeah, uh, Harry had... Uh, been interested in in uh, manipulating images pretty early in life. His parents had, had worked in Alaska at different times, and they had apparently hundreds of pictures. But more than that, they they had um, a lot of them weren't printed out, and they were just the negatives. And Harry was holding them up to the light and doing things with them and playing around with them, turning them backward and forward. And it's not clear what he did altogether. The, the one person who was who knew him when he was young said that he was doing some kind of animation, but it, since he wasn't this this person wasn't interested in that, he never discussed it with him. But but Harry was playing around with um, cigar boxes and running little strips of film through things and so forth, maybe with lights underneath. So when he got to Berkeley, uh, there's an interesting thing going on there. The, the um, the San Francisco Museum of Art, as it was called at the time, um, was recognizing jazz as an art and pushing it, just as the Museum of Modern Art was doing at the same moment. They were the only places doing that. But both of them were also pushing film as an art. Now, that sounds a little strange, except there was actual resistance to this, uh, to the idea of film, um, partly because... Uh, and, and you have to acknowledge this is serious. It's hard to show in a museum. Uh, you, you, it's still hard to show. You have to set a whole part of the museum apart, which they did at, um, at uh, San Francisco, uh, or you've got to sort of put a little black box somewhere and just crowd people in there and they take turns listening to it. Plus the fact it's not like you can't just sort of look at it like a painting. It's moving, so you could easily be sitting in there for an hour, and this changes the whole pattern of things. It's also an economic matter, which is since film can be bought cheaply in copies, um, you can't get rich people to give you a film and say, here, you can do what you want to with it, and then you can't, you can't finance it, and you can't, you know, if, in other words, it was too cheap in some ways. For, for, right. So... Um, it doesn't have that aura of uh, unreproducibility, right? Right. And uh, although they should have been aware of the fact that some of the earliest people were animating, uh, basically were trying to animate painting, or certainly Harry was. His, uh, he, he painted directly on the film, which was not the first to do. That was done by um, uh, by, uh, by several other people. But And he was shocked to find out not only that he wasn't the first, but that they had done it on 16 millimeter and he'd done it on 35. So his work was much easier to do in theory. However, Harry's was much more detailed and interesting than, these, than the other people working. What he would do, he'd have to paint both sides of the film, the background and the front. And he worked out techniques by, by using, putting little pieces of paper or, or uh, sticky dots on and then pulling them off after it dried so he could get different colors and shapes 
doing things, and then you have to move them as you did this. It's very slow work, and you could spend a year on a on a one minute film if you not you know because uh, you're having to do some of the frames the same every time until you know mm -hmm. visible. Otherwise, it just flies past. So Harry started that way, and he was said he was trying to represent the same things he'd seen seeing with Dizzy Gillespie, exploding dots and triangles and things flying through the air. And it's worth remembering that animation began exactly at the same time as motion pictures did, and it was far more advanced in that they could do things that the others couldn't do. You could make people disappear, appear from nowhere, fly, you know. Um, my favorite was in one earlier film in which uh, an animated character disappears, and then when the credits are rolling, sticks his head back in to make sure he's got credits. <laughs> you could, um, in fact, they did more things than anyone else would dare to do, like smoking the film, uh, is, is changing its color that way, and so on. So it was. You got to see that it is a kind of really advanced technique right from the beginning. Now Harry stumbles into that the hard way because he hasn't got a camera and he hasn't got the money to, to, to either have it developed or pay for the rights to the music. So. What he ended up doing was was having to perform the, the film, which is to say, um, match the speed with the music and what have you, and led him to the idea that maybe anything would go with anything, which he was always saying. And it, it, it's remarkably true, although when it's not true, it's not <laughs> a good example. Uh, if you watch this stuff up on YouTube, uh, some of it has just been taken off of... Um, commercial issues, but that was the period when Harry tried out the, the the Beatles as a soundtrack. And what happens is that the Beatles are still singing while the film ends or vice versa. And the stuff is kind of annoying, actually. You know, you're better off not watching it that way. But he was encouraged to do that kind of thing, and he did it. Um, I had the sense that Harry was trying to reinvent film, and by that I meant he went back to the earliest kind of thing, which was pre-film, pre, uh, pre basically. You know, we're doing things on strips of cloth or paper and working our way up and spinning images on the wheels and the rest of it. And then he started to do things like um, one film, which doesn't exist anymore, was um, projected onto, he did a film, projected it on a screen, and behind the screen, he had lights that would change in various ways so that the, if you're standing in front, it's changing without you seeing the, the device behind it. Then he took a film of the film. So, But viewers, when they saw this, in this at the San Francisco Art Museum, they weren't aware they were watching a, a film of a film. But it was somehow texturally different. And, and we don't, you know, someone mm. have done this since then, but you can imagine that it would be different with these different dimensions of it. Later, he started manipulating film, you might like a DJ might do, uh, by his use of Mysterioso by Thelonious Monk, which he began just a three and a half minute film to go with, then said to himself, what if I reverse this? So he ended up having the film run with the record and then run the record and the film backwards and then go back to the other. So it's a three-part thing, A, B, A, and so forth. So it seemed to me like he was doing that. Then he moved on to other things such as um, multiple screens and and the like. And I think, uh, but always adding something, always doing something different. His use of multiple screens was really different than Abel Gantz's Napoleon or, or even uh, Andy Warhol's um, 
electric factory walls things they were just you know they they they, they weren't they weren't playing off each other is what I mean to say. So if you have mm -hmm. four screens, you could have those four appearing in different places. You could have two, three, you could put the same thing up, you put nothing up. And it's a totally different way to work. And typical of Harry, it's enormously expensive to run the film and you would have to do it the hard way as he did, which was making selections as you, as you on the fly. So when you can see it and it will be shown at the, um, uh, the Whitney in October, it's already in a fixed form, so it's not with Harry's changing. In fact, when it was shown uh, at its premiere, the, the um, Anthology Film Archive said every night will be a different film. So it really was a performance. I mean, it's it's, it's almost like uh, you know some kind of a like like a VJ performance or something. Yeah. It's it's not like he just said, "Okay, now play the film." He was really an active part of of each different uh, screening of these films. Yeah, and it may be forgotten by, by people who weren't close to the stuff in the 70s, but there was a period where people did outrageous things. They would they would have cameras, but no film in it. <laughs> and what you'd be watching right. with someone who were dancing around the room with a camera, or they would, um, they would have something that was really not projectionable. In fact, I think Mikas mentions that in one of his voice pieces where he says, if you're gonna, we now have people, such as Warhol and uh, and Harry, whose films can't be shown without them being there, which is going to raise the cost of them going to festivals and the like. And then he mentions the dancing phenomena and the people tricking people with the cameras and so forth. Right. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the anthology of American folk music. We've we've touched on it a bit, but um, one of the things that was surprising to me in reading your book was that the anthology really was not a big seller. Uh, at, a, at its time of release and didn't really become one for quite some time. I mean, it's actually, it's still pretty expensive. You can find <laughs> versions of it online, but if you want to buy the, the records or even the CDs, it's a, it's a, it's a costly uh, proposition. Um, I, it almost reminded me of the, you know, the kind of chestnut about the Velvet Underground. Not many people bought the album, but everybody that did started a band. It seems like not many people brought, bought the anthology of American folk music, but everyone that did bought an acoustic guitar, maybe. Um, what, how was its influence felt and how did it become known as this kind of uh, classic uh, a kind of Bible for the folk revival, given that it didn't actually sell all that many copies? Yeah, it, um, it, it, well, it, it was expensive around in today's money around $240, $250. Um, and that was because Moash thought it wasn't, it wasn't commercially viable. He was putting out things that were, you know, we don't think about it now because they're not being reproduced, but he was, he had films on how to type with a typewriter or, you know, <laughs> any bizarre, you know, a bunch of kids uh, hanging out on a corner talking. It was, almost anything was recordable, he would record. And he expected only to be saleable to schools and to, um, to libraries who could afford more. And that was his point. Not that it would even pay off what he was doing, but it was not a profit making enterprise at first. And I think Harry got the equivalent of $1,900 advance by today's standards uh, for doing this. Um, he didn't sell anything for, well, try, try this. Um, it was never mentioned in print for 10 years. And the, the first mention was by a British jazz guy who grasped immediately what he was up to. 
And then the other two were ethnomusicologists who sort of got the idea. Um, actually, that's wrong. It was only the, it was only the one and a library uh, journal reference to it. Uh, the the one I was thinking of was later when he did the um, Peyote uh, songs from the Kiowa. Kiowa, sorry. Um, one reviewer said that the uh, recorder, recordist suggested that you use peyote when you're listening to it. And he said, unfortunately, there was none in the box set. So um, mixing those two up. But at any rate, um, yeah, it was just expensive. And it, it caught on in the village. And I talked to people who were alive at that time. And they said, yeah, it was surprising. The musics that were really popular in the early 70s in the village were things like uh, African music was beginning to be heard a lot, certainly Latin music, bullfight music, uh, exoticism of that form, and it was affecting various arts in various ways. And it, it mostly was heard on cassettes being passed around by people who, who couldn't afford these things. I even had them that way. In fact, they're still happening out in one form or another out in, uh, in Europa where um, Harry was for a while. So it was an underground phenomenon, mostly because of e economics and because of the overall weirdness of it. Um, Grail Marcus always talks about the... Um, old weird America. We're now in the new, old moon weird America. So, you know, maybe we should have an album now for our own. I guess, I guess it is happening. People are making records that seem like they were made for this, this time period. Right. If, uh, I'm drifting off the subject. Sorry. Right. I mean, but, but this music, I mean, if you look at the, uh, the track list on these, on these albums and, you know, if you're at all conversant in folk music, he really does get a lot of the the big names of that uh, of that genre. I mean, Mississippi John Hurt. There's the Carter family. Um, there's I'm just looking at it now. Uh, Furry Lewis. I mean, uh, he he really did a great job of kind of getting a lot of the big names, uh, but also um, an incredible range of music. I mean, and people who wouldn't have necessarily thought of themselves as as folk musicians. I mean, there's, there's gospel, there's uh, Creole music from Louisiana, there's country music, blues music, you know, early jazz. Uh, did, did Harry Smith in some ways kind of create this idea of folk music as this kind of catch all term? Can, can that be credited to some way with the anthology? He was uh, wary of using it on the record. He finally agreed to that because he thought it would be treated as um, what, um, trying to think what he said about it. It was kind of vague, but he thought it was... Like it would all be Pete Seeger or something oh, like yeah, that. that. Is that the idea? That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, which, and if you think back, the Weavers and Seeger and Burl Ives were pretty easy listening people. I mean, they, you know, they had a political edge, but um, Woody Guthrie you know, quit from the, several of his projects because he thought they were too mainstream. They were appearing in tuxedos, you know, I mean, whatever, you know, that that's, right. that's a whole other phenomena. How did folk music crossover among the very wealthy. And uh, I, I was stunned to find in a file somewhere um, an invitation to a new hotel in New York on the Upper uh, East Side. And they were having not just real folk musicians, they were having square dance lessons. I'm thinking, my God, these, the hotel is really expensive. Who are these people? But then, you know, I mean, this is the, this is 
the way of history. When I found a picture on the web of black students at Howard, not only dancing to square dance, but to a white country group, I thought, damn, you know, anything is possible. <laughs> right. These, uh, these cultural circuits are always uh, wider than we maybe would, would think that they would be. Yeah, and we wire them, we wire them down to our own listening practices, which, you know, is, is tragic. I, I, I try telling somebody, quite quoting to somebody who's a hardcore jazz fan that, um, let's see, uh, certainly um, Albert Eiler, um, well, Albert Eiler would do for the moment. Musicians who suddenly, who were thought really ultra, you know, they were the, the far out as you're going to go, saying they were trying to get the old New Orleans sound. Right. And it's true. If you look at what they're doing, they're doing their marches, <laughs> church pieces and so forth. Um, Threadgill too. Henry Threadgill is, strikes me as another example. Right. And um, yeah, and it's we who are the, you know, these are the, these are the people with the big picture and we're the ones with the little picture. It's, it's something... Um, you know, I'm old enough to have gone through lots of phases of different music, and and I look back, I don't regret any of them, but I wondered why I spent so much time listening to some bad country music, you know, <laughs> some of Bakersfield, California music that was not that interesting. Um, but, you know, there's a famous example, not famous at all, but it's mentioned once in a while, that someone, a musician, was dropped by to see Thelonious Monk, and he was playing some bad country music, and... The guy said, um, I think it's Steve Lacey, maybe. He said, are you listening to this? And he said, check out the drummer. <laughs> and Lacey, if it was Lacey, said, you know, the drummer was interesting. <laughs> That's great, yeah. So, I mean, I guess maybe that leads to a, a final question, sort of a, a summing up question, which is uh, how do you reconcile um, – the sort of uh, ultra vanguardist side of Harry Smith with the traditionalist side. I mean, here's this guy who is hand painting experimental animated films and, you know, projecting them in a unique way at every performance and hanging out with, with Jonas Mikas and Maya Darren, but also, you know, deeply interested in uh, this kind of backwoods uh, country and folk music from the twenties I mean, how do you how do you reconcile those two sides of his personality? Uh, very good question, hard to answer. I, I, there are always in every generation, I guess, people who who approximate this in some way or another. Off, off the top of my head, someone like um, let me think, David Amram, not as extreme as Harry, but a guy who's comfortable play, and has played with all kinds of groups, um, folk. Classic. Just if you look him up on Wikipedia, you say, can a guy who was writing Hollywood scores for really good films and was the first composer in residence uh, with uh, Leonard Bernstein and was also recording with American Indians uh, and so forth, is this the same, and was doing jazz and poetry stuff, is this the same person? Well, there are always people like that. I, I ended up talking about um, the concept of Virginia Woolf's, which was the idea of the eccentric. And I thought when I looked at it, there were two pieces on eccentricity and the arts, I thought we're going to get the usual British view of the, the crazy Brit. But that's not what she meant. She's going back to the original use of the word, meaning out of the center and on the edge. And she's talking about people 
who are so on the edge that they can't be successful, that they won't be um, acknowledged, except by those people who are very cool and on top of things and are saying, whoa, what is this here? And they, uh, they incorporate it and are affected by it, and they don't, um, they don't necessarily credit their sources. And she says, um, mm, by the way, she says in passing, that's why we'll never have a good, we're never going to see a good biography of these people. And I said, whoa, that hurts. But I understood what you're saying. These people are beyond biography. You know, there's no, there's no um, t- clear timeline, no taste line. There's no, um, how do they survive? I mean, and some of the, some of the, you know, the modern composers of the 40s and 50s were like Harry bums. We haven't talked about that phenomenon, but how do you survive on the streets? Or how do you survive riding on the back of trains and things and um, um, living with hobos? The world of art is way, way bigger than we like to remember, I think. Yeah. You have that wonderful quote. I think it's by Allen Ginsberg when he says, uh, you know, when you disappear in New York, you really disappear. <laughs> and you kind of get the sense that, you know, Harry Smith was like on the run or something. Like he was like living in these little uh, interstices within within New York City in a way that, I mean, you say, you know, in the book, like how could he have possibly survived with no job and insecure funding in, you know, a, a city like New York. But it kind of seems to me like maybe you could only do that in a city like New York, you know? <laughs> That's a good point. I think um, for my time I lived in New York, um, I, I, I would, when I first moved to New York, I, I, I don't know, I was walking to work and um, I went past a gospel, that was secondary. There was a preacher on a corner in an empty lot, and he was apparently there every day because I saw him every day and had gospel singers behind him. It was pretty good. So I mentioned this to a friend I knew who was native-born New Yorker um, who was into that kind of music, and I said, hey, did you check out the minister over, I forget where it's not 14th Street, it was 18th or 19th, something. And he said, uh, no. But I go by there every day. I said, you can't be going by there every day. So I went with him. He said, Gigi, I never noticed these people. Well, (laughs) that's the other side of New York, right? Uh, Right. People turn up where you don't expect them or you don't want them or or whatever, or you don't have time or um, distractions like crazy. And in fact, what I remember about my time in New York was I kept running into things that had no signs and no announcements. And people were lining up and I'm thinking, what? what am I missing here? You know, I wandered into one of those things once and it was a place that had every night two plays being read, you know, by actors that they'd hired the day before to read these parts. And for $5, you could see this play, this play. And I thought, damn, that is incredible. But then I found out some people knew that were going there all the time. They had a fixed audience for it. Wow. Well, I I really love this book for a lot of reasons. I learned more about this this person, but it's also just such a wonderful. We didn't really get much time to talk about this, but such a wonderful evocation of that time in New York history. You know, kind of fifties to the seventies when that incredible bohemian uh, ferment was going on, and and Harry Smith was at the center of more than one scene within that world. So uh, it was really a, a great uh, kind of time capsule of that world. So. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, writing this wonderful book, Cosmic Scholar, and thanks for appearing on New Books in Performing Arts to talk about it. I appreciate being on. Thank you. 